Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're speaking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a criminal barrister, TV judge and former Strictly Come Dancing contestant who can twist around any glitter ball. He was brought up in a working class community in Southgate, North London. His father's a black taxi driver and he and his brother Craig lived with his mother, Angela Cohen, a publisher. Rob Rinder, or Judge Rinder maybe, welcome to Past Imperfect. You were a very precocious child talking before you could walk, you say. Did you always crave attention? Um, I mean, that is what you call a leading question. I mean, that's... <laughs> Your Honour. Your Honour. Incre- inc- no, no, no. That's, that's incredibly impressive way of, ask, of asking that question. Actually, um, the evidence from that comes not from me, um, from my mum, apparently. Um, she says that I was uh, talking before I could walk. I, wasn't conscious about it, but I was certainly judging people before I could walk. I have really early, vivid memories of, of I think, babyhood. I mean, I, uh, the difficulty is I've retrospectively refitted and recurated my childhood in so many ways as I get older, often placing myself as the hero of the narrative, as we always do. But certainly, I remember being really little and in my cot, and I couldn't even tell you how old, but um, thinking, goodness me, if I, no, I wouldn't have thought, goodness me. But firstly, thinking that, um, I mean, this is definitely an adult re-remembering, but certainly thinking that the anaglypta needed a rethink. And then definitely thinking, if I cry, they will come. Early, early intuitive thoughts of uh, manipulation. Yeah. So uh, in, in answer to your long, that was a long answer to your question, you see, pivoting and avoiding what you ask. Uh, precocious. I used to hate that word. I still hate that word. Um, it's like uh, the type of word that adults use to silence children when um, they say things like stop showing off. Nothing makes my you know, stomach tighten and my bottom clench more. Show off. Be your best fabulous self. So when you say precocious, <laughs> the reason I take issue with the word is because I can feel that sort of, especially back in the 70s, early 80s, those um, shrugging shoulders and... Um, uh, uh, eye rolls of, of grown-ups, um, you know, thinking that I shouldn't be present in the conversation or advising my um, au pairs on their uh, uh, emotional relationships just because I was five. <laughs> so how did you feel when your parents divorced when you were quite young, six or seven, I think? Did you feel very judgy or did you feel vulnerable? No, not vulnerable at all. And it's really, I you see how quickly I answered that question. Again, this is a really interesting conversation because... I really do think that even though I was about five or six when I was told in my bedroom with Montreal wallpaper <laughs> and a, a ropey black and white television that uh, mummy and daddy were getting divorced, uh, two things occurred to me. One was this is good because uh, the reality of their lives together was that it was extremely emotionally and physically toxic to say the very very least they'd got married um when my mum was engaged at 17 they'd got married when they were in i think 20 or 21 and had my brother then young parents both of them wholly unsuited to one another i mean from different uh emotional and i suppose sort of cultural planets certainly from the same backgrounds in many respects but just in terms of their curiosities and their uh, capacity for my dad certainly to respect her and her his ability to be a father and above all else a husband at that stage and I emphasize that because he did go on to become a, a, a good husband in his second marriage but at that point I remember 
not being desperately concerned about them, but kind of thinking, I think, again, you know, this may be as I've kind of uh, gone back and intuitively thought, what is, what's the sort of opening chapters of my autobiography going to be and wanting them to be a little bit amusing. But I do think that I was conscious that well, we were in, as you described in the opening, a kind of working class community, which is true. But also we were the first Jewish family to experience divorce. So I was going to be at the epicentre of a social drama. And <laughs> with, a, with a, right, with a speaking part too. And I never felt myself sort of inculcated or absorbing of that social shame, which there really was. We we're kind of Orthodox Jewish as well. And, you know, it was, it was a shameful and I have to say angry and in the short term, uh, in the course of the separation, quite uh, an emotionally violent separation. Um, but as I say, I was, I, I, I guess, sort of conscious, as best way I can describe it, of an emotional intuition, because at that point it couldn't have been any more than that, a sense that this was best for both of them. But also I was the younger son, which makes a huge, I think, difference, a significant difference. You know, my brother had a great deal of things in common with my dad and still does, um, although my dad now is um, very unwell. But, you know, football, they had they had all of those kind of shared masculine interests so they could kind of communicate with each other through the prism of, you know, the 1981 Tottenham team, which I gave my absolute undivided indifference to. <laughs> so I guess, you know, I mean, other than I used to collect later on those little football stickers but I used to keep them in order of attractiveness I had a whole book of Jan Mulbys <laughs> oh, um, and and so there was also I suspect a part of me that thought well you know I, I suppose I'll see him on the weekend it's not as if we have a, a great deal in common in any event and you said that your mum deprived you of the first five chapters of your autobiography because she made sure that you were never miserable what was she like as a mum what is she like now isn't that outrageous I know I'm constantly frustrated by it. Um, I mean, in, in a half serious way, I don't know, I'd have to reverse engineer what she's like now uh, um, or, or think about it now and then think about her extraordinary journey. You know, you, you should never use that word unless there has been one. You know, it's like dying and waking up in a strictly little VT, you know, let's watch your journey, you know. Um, it is unusual, I think, uh, in, in human life for people to go on real emotional, intellectual, cultural and spiritual journeys, all of those things where you start in one place and you grow and evolve into another. And she's done that with such deafness and authenticity. So, you know, let's start at the end. I mean, when I get divorced, I went around to my mum's house, which was obviously the first person I was going to tell. It's probably the most painful thing in my life. And... Um, before we even started the conversation, she said, look, I, I, I hear you. I obviously set out what the issue was. And she said, well, I just want to know what you need from this conversation and how I can best be mindful. I was like, you can throw something. Where's the drama? <laughs> and that's not to say, and I think it would be inauthentic, disingenuous and, and wrong. I mean, just untrue to say that you're perfect over the years. But the thing was that whereas... Um, it wouldn't be a misrepresentation to say that my dad kind of settled into his life in the same comfortable sense of the world and the word. He, my mum changed and grew and evolved and was constantly taking risk and has a limitless sense of cultural and intellectual and emotional curiosity, that thirst to know more and to grow. And because she was so young, we sort of grew alongside one another so whether that meant in terms of her building this business where she put our house up on the market, right? I mean, she started it from her top her bedroom, selling advertising space on a Spurs newspaper, it's called. It was a, um, a desktop publishing company, which she grew. And then she was almost sort of businesswoman of the year and she's been for a few years. This is from a woman, by the way, who'd had no formal education. And I mean, although Southgate was by no stretch of the imagination Anna Tevka in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, it, it was very much a kind of a type of working class community. And I'm really interested in, you know, the title of this autobiography is about social mobility, where your um, life goals, your expectations of what you would do and who you would be were externally set for you. So for this person, I think it's, again, I didn't think it's any secret to say she's done 
sorts of work and reflections over the years. And, um, you know, she is um, unrecognizable now from the person she was when she first got divorced, where, um, you know, she didn't necessarily have kind of any formal experience, but what she did do was act as a parent on her best instincts and on good faith. So that meant that despite very justified provocation, she never sought to weaponize my brother and or me in the course of the divorce, which meant that we maintained, and even today, retain really good relationships with my dad's family, especially my grandparents on my dad's side. Insisted, for instance, that we, you know, were present and there every Monday at my grandparents' house, regardless of what was going on, and phoned them and you know, kind of aggressively pursued that relationship on our behalf, knowing that it mattered, that we kept all of those enduring emotional connections. In other words, she didn't project her justified toxicity onto us. She allowed us to find out who these people were on our own, which is a, a real special brand of magic as a parent, I think. Mm. You sound very different to your father. I can't imagine he was rating the footballers according to their attractiveness. How, what was your relationship like with him when you were growing up? I mean, just as a really... <laughs> he certainly wasn't. Um, you know, it's a really good question now because as he gets more unwell, um, it's something that I've been kind of forced to reflect on. We were just total strangers in, in, in every sense, really. Um, but one thing I was never, as I got older, certainly, I was never, ever unsure of and have never been unsure of, and it's important that this is clear, is his love for me or the sense that he was and is extremely proud of me, albeit in a slightly surprised way, perhaps. This is not kind of the, the, the narrative that he would have written or um, the story he would have told on my behalf, but but there was never there has never been that you know when I was at university without missing a week he put 20 quid in my account which was a lot of money back then mm. um and you know and that mattered but we just had almost kind of nothing in common whatsoever in any sense um a kind of I suppose the best way of describing it is that you know had we not been genetically connected to one another we would never have found each other we never have been friends, except he's very socially gregarious and can be lots of fun. But even as a young person, I was very conscious, by young, I mean really young, of the things that he was interested in and the humour and the stuff that made him delighted and um, the things that he would invest in were just not things that in any way mattered to me or that I felt, and I emphasise I felt, had any particular value. And it's really important when you say that, that you know, that, that that's not snobbery because I've come, got older. I see the joy and the value in all of these things. It was just when I was little and sort of uh, 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 working my way up to becoming, you know, the lost Mitford that uh, <laughs> I was much more judgmental then, you know. Because you say you were perpetually craving another kind of life. Was that the kind of life? Did mm. you want to be a Mitford sister? I mean, I still do. Little, <laughs> you know, Which one? Well, a good question. Well, I mean, Jessica's my hero. She's in many ways the bravest, but I mean, I'd settle for well, not the Nazi ones, obviously. <laughs> Unity, but even then, I mean, you know, you, yes, but even then, the early letters are hilarious, and 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 what it, I suppose, what I admire in all of them is, I suppose, what we're getting at here is that they were all oral, sometimes painfully at their cost, totally authentic, and and that's a word now that gets banded about, and especially banded about by. Uh, 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 politicians, or, or we ascribe that um, that word or, or on politicians, so especially successful ones. Um, and what it actually means, and in many cases, in the case of politicians, it's not true at all, is that these are people that consciously chose to, it's a lovely Yiddish word, be dovka such a great word, be contrary, not for the sake of it, but to live their lives according to the rules that they created rather than the ones that society projected onto them in the first place. That's what I loved about them and still do. 
So you once said you thought childhood was absurd and your teachers found you infuriating. Is that why? Because you wanted your own rules? It was a nightmare. I mean, I didn't think it was a terrible nightmare. I wasn't like naughty for that. I was, I, was ter- I mean, I was scared. I wasn't like, you know, I did believe in things like permanent records and all that nonsense, you know, like anyone else. But I, no, I just, I just didn't suit the condition of child. What I remember was, it, I, I felt, I only really understood this when I was 16 and I, I wasn't very academic, but I was sort of vaguely kind of teetering in top sets. And I, I remember seeing, I think her name's Miss Fuller's English notebook, which she would leave in the event that, you know, a supply teacher would come. And she had a little note describing each person. And I think mine was quite good. <laughs> then, that's the worst. You know, that's, the f- <laughs> uh, that's the first time I've ever shared that story. I've just remembered it. <laughs> School was kind of, I just, I don't know. I, I just wasn't, I was a sort of B plus, B minus E student. And I didn't enjoy being... Um, uh, in organised education and I certainly didn't like not being the star of the show I mean you know I, I faked appendicitis when I was seven my mum still doesn't believe it but it's definitely true um, so what happened you just pretended you were too did they take your appendix out well no what had happened was the star of our class Jennifer Down who was very good at drawing Christmas trees and had plenty of plaudits in any event <laughs> rather thoughtlessly went and got peritonitis a blown up appendix um, and it was about two weeks after Dov Perman had got run over <laughs> and so um, we had to write c- cards for all of these people and they were the epicentre of attention which was kind of stealing, um, you know, I suppose the kind of the, the storyline that I was running, which was the child of um, divorce people, which was a big storyline at the time. Right. You know? <laughs> what happened was I wanted to get out of school. And, you know, my mum, as I say, was working and we had this incredibly um, gullible, I suppose. Um, uh, we had no pair back then. And... Um, yeah, she was a credulous. I anyway, um, I had said I'd got a, a stomachache and completely forgotten about it. And the next day, my mum, who spent her time constantly in a kind of heightened, anxious state of guilt, being a single mum and working, even though my grandma was around the corner and my aunt up the road, you know, we, we were in a, a community. And that really is important to describe and kind of colour in this childhood in an important way. Absolutely um, enveloped in delighted and real deal unconditional love but nevertheless I sort of said oh yes it hurts here and I lucked out on the right side of my stomach <laughs> and so we ended up going to our ropey GP she said he's got suspected as appendicitis and said I'm not quite sure what's going on about seven so I got taken to Chase Farm Hospital by this stage everyone's sort of getting really sort of dramatic and I realised I've gone too far now but it's too late right so they're sticking injections in which I'm crying because the injections hurt it's too late to say, look, nothing's happening. And, and, and oh, he's crying because he's in pain. So all these adults have got confirmation bias of me sort of crying. Yeah. And then fast forward, I end up having my appendix removed. No. Um, Did I they tell you afterwards it was completely fine? I've asked that they said something about them twisted, but I think that they were just saving sure. bags. <laughs> and had you got any kind of tummy ache at all? You just totally made the whole not thing sure. up. Not sure. Not <laughs> all. And I've told my mum this countless times. Yeah. Did your brother not guess? She doesn't believe it. I think my father was no. a sibling I'd have guessed. <laughs> no, no. Again, we were strangers really growing up in many ways because of just the different way we were kind of experiencing the world until we rather beautifully have come together in our 20s and 30s. And especially now we have a, a level, I think, of sort of joyous understanding where we can be in each other's presence and agree on absolutely everything and saying nothing, albeit we say it and, and perhaps think it in different ways. But fundamentally the prism through which we see the world and experience others is so delightfully shared but back then we didn't know that I mean there he was you know with his mates communicating through the medium of what I consider to be some sort of species of Neolithic grunt <laughs> you know football and football stickers and I don't know that sort of thing whereas I was like, you know I, I just I was doing gymnastics and horse riding so <laughs> what's well, really it's fascinating not, not, not the same one What's fascinating though is you've sort of defined mm. your tragedy as your advantage, if you like. Do you think that really was the case, yeah. or was is that was that a kind of reinvention, almost like a defence mechanism, f- to create the narrative in a positive way? I, I'm not sure I understand what it means that it's my my that it's been my tragedy. I think what's clear though is that I 
had a mum who, it, it bears repetition, you know, sort of grew. That I, I can't over, I can't sort of overstate the magic of that. I can't overstate the importance of it. Rather, I can't overstate the importance of having a mum who was really um, not accepting, because I suspect her views, sort of thirty years ago, would be rather problematic now when it came to perhaps gay people, etc. But she was constantly learning and open-minded. I think that's really important. And like I say, you know, a grandma up the road around the corner, a, a grandfather who's a Holocaust survivor, a, a, a sense of, of safety. Yes, a working class community, but one where people were evaluated and judged. I really must emphasize this. It's, it's kind of made things now a little bit even sort of challenging. And certainly when I was started at the bar, where you were absolutely uh, not judged by anything other than um, the way sort of working class communities judge people, which is really about what people do and never who they are, or what they look like. So, you know, it, uh, regardless of whether there was a Jewish family down the road, what we were really nudged into was playing with the family up the road who were a family of colour because their family, the dad was a doctor. So that was like a big deal, right? And so at the heart of it, we're kind of education and aspiration and an external expectation that you will succeed um was a kind of presence in the family there was a an expectation you would do well an ex expectation you would outdo your parents and there was uh, an expectation that they would delight in seeing you do it when you said that you were a slightly odd giraffe in a sea full of elephants and flamingos do you think that was it that you actually really wanted to go somewhere and do something and you didn't feel that the children around you were in the same way or was it no i had friends i wasn't weird i was gay i mean that's a big old deal right i mean that's a whole sort of podcasted its own. I, I, I was, I was, I just didn't have much in common with boys my own age. That was the thing, you know, there was I with my desperation for a Polly Pocket or a My Little Pony. Instead, I'd only get yellow ones. I'd have to go up the road and play with the Miranda Hadjimanolis. <laughs> and now I, it's really exciting. I say to some of my girlfriends, that's the first 10 minutes when they're sort of looking fabulous. I can't be normal. I'm never normal really anyway. But the first 10 minutes of meeting some sort of fabulous woman, doesn't matter how brilliant they are, I realise I'm not listening. I'm just excited. I'm just like getting my pink My Little Pony, <laughs> which is kind of problematic if you've got a, you know, I, I, I would be often work with the best silks. I'd usually choose, especially in complex murder trials, you know, the great uh, women silks of, of, of my generation to work with. And I realised for the first sort of day of us working together, I, I wasn't doing anything apart from sort of redecorating, really. <laughs> um, which is, I suppose, some sort of misogyny to some extent. But then, yeah. anyway. So, so then God, you, joined, you, you joined the National Youth Theatre, didn't you? Did you always want to be an actor when you were a child? <sighs> no, it's the kind of one thing. I mean, we're sort of jumping around in, in all sorts of ways. But I mean... Uh, primary school, I'd got the main part in school plays. You know, I played Ulysses in their version of The Odyssey. And here's the thing, I can remember every single song and more or less remember every line in every film and most books I read as a child. It's exhausting. Certainly all the songs from Ulysses. You, I mean, I'll, yeah. I mean, don't worry, I won't do them now. <laughs> Ulysses, yeah. Anyway. Um, oh, I hear the sirens calling. And then there was the choir. And in the choir, you had Rachel Stevens from S Club going, Ulysses. Anyway. Um, Your primary school so sounds amazing. Was, Osage School Primary School. It was um, much like the schools that I, I'm really privileged to be near in Islington now. Because everybody uh, across the community was conscripted. That's the wrong word. Required, I suppose. No, most people used uh, the local primary schools. Very few people went to private school, took their kids out. It was a kind of real suburban, comprehensive styles primary school. And because of that, kind of there was a, a, a broad socioeconomic and a broad cultural range. Uh, and, and I really mean a, a really mixed tapestry. I, I, and so it had really, really good teaching. It's had extraordinary alumni. I mean, Amy Winehouse went there much of course, after me. Um, and I have to tell you, you know, and, and a number of, uh, of, of extremely bright people too. And I remember looking, watching the Amy Winehouse documentary, my mum, my dad rather, and her dad were, were great friends. So I still know her a little bit. And, and I remember looking and seeing the scene in the first bit of that documentary, of that sort of semi-detached, I think it was on Burley Gardens, wherever it was. And 
feeling this overwhelming sense of memory of childhood and feeling goodness me. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, TV judge Rob Rinder. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, Rob Rinder, the star barrister and TV judge. I got to secondary school and again, I was no great shapes academically. And it was something that I think my mum, especially when she chose it, chose it really with my brother in mind. And him not having a permanent dad presence around, it was her, I suppose, ongoing worry that he needed discipline. And I think my brother would say back then he did and he needed rugby and, you know, uh, uh, sport and cricket and man things or whatever it was. Whereas... I didn't need that, actually. Um, but, you know, back then, once you'd chosen where your the older son had gone, that's where you went, right? And I found a teacher there who sort of thought I was quite good at acting, and, and I ended up becoming, you know, Bugsy Malone in the Bugsy Malone play and auditioned for National Youth Theatre and got in. But there was no kind of a special aspiration. I was 14. And then finally, I left at sort of 15, 16, and went to sixth form college where everything changed. And so that question about, you know, not suiting the condition of childhood, really, I've come to understand that when I met Miss Grice, uh, the brilliant teacher, and I'm not the only person, like, I mean, there are countless people whose lives she changed. Um, she, in this very gentle, northern, effortless way, said, um, oh, you're quite clever, aren't you? And honestly, those there's that one sentence, that one suggestion. I remember it. Mm. It was like a, a sort of volt of electricity. It switched on whatever switch it was. And I, I just completely changed. Uh, you know, I, I, I did some acting, a couple of musicals at whatever it was, at, at six from college, but I just became really interested in, in learning mm. and thought that I could do stuff and um, did five A-levels and, 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 and liked being clever. It mattered, and um, and and she. Um, it, it was her that did that. Undoubtedly, she kind of created the possibility without question. And you went to Manchester University, didn't you? And read politics. Uh, this Miss Grice had gone to Manchester and done politics and modern history, and it was the early nineties, and it was like cool. I mean, there was a whole cultural explosion happening in Manchester. I was terribly cognizant of it, but it was very much kind of zeitgeisty place to go. 
But you then took up debating. You had the real gift of the gab. Do you think that came more from your mother or your father's side? And in a way, was that a form of acting as an intellectual argument rather than an emotional performance? I started off as a form of acting, but it's not that. Mm. You know, in the way that lots of people kind of confuse jury speech and say, well, you know, it's just being a thespian. It's sort of-ish. But, you know, you've got to have an incredibly strong grip on the facts. And also juries can tell straight away if you're acting and being authentic. Mm. You can't fake it. So there is a connective tissue as far as it's standing on your feet and being performative. But other than that, not as much as you would think. No, I'm debating became like much like this one Mrs. Christing. I, I met a guy called Rob Gass and um, we, Manchester didn't really have a presence on this sort of big they used to have a circuit, it's called debating competitions around universities. Uh, and it was, we would say, Bichette Destin, we started becoming quite good at it, winning competitions and things. And who do I get it from? I don't know, but it taught me so much. And, you know, I have to say, when I, I try when I'm people are asking advice about coming to the bar or whatever it is they're going to do. I always say that debating is an you know is an immensely. I always say that debating is an immensely important skill. You know, you've got ten minutes to prepare a topic. So you have to be quite well read and knowledgeable, or if not, be able to get the information quickly, triage it, structure it, and give a five minute speech in response. And once you've done that, that will equip you with so much value, so many kind of transferable skills, as we would say nowadays. And why did you choose criminal law, do you think, in the end? You know, I'd love to tell your listeners that there was some kind of conscious plan. But, you know, back in the last century, when you made these determinations, we made them free of debt, right? So that enabled people to be, I think, a little bit freer in how they meandered through life, even if they didn't come from real privilege. So I certainly didn't. Um, I left university with 1,100 quid's worth of debt. Now, that's a really important throat clearing because I think about it now with my young mentor Reeds who are in 50, 60, 70,000 pounds worth of debt. I wonder if I'd be as kind of loose about deciding what law I did as I was then. And the reason was is because I did debating because what happened was I was just sort of following other people. It was completely sheep back. You know, I'd gone, I'd done all that debating. That's what people did. I sort of decided I didn't want to be an actor or a broadcaster. I knew I was going to have to come out to my parents. I suspect being a barrister, despite her unconditional love, would have kind of, a gay barrister would have cushioned the blow somewhat. You know, there's kind of social cachet in that. So that would have meant something. I'm sure that, you know, affected my thinking to some extent. But also because, like, I suppose we've alluded to, um, it, it, it was jury speeches because of what I'd seen on telly. Mm. And because I also instinctively, and I think correctly, I have to say now, didn't think I'd have the intellectual capacity, just simply the, the, the you know, there's sometimes only Yiddish will do, there's a word called sitzfleisch. And what it means is, translate the German, it means your capacity to sit still, focus and concentrate. And you really need that in commercial law. And I knew there's no way I could sit for a day looking through shipping documents. Mm. It would have lasted half an hour. <laughs> Your grandfather was also a Holocaust survivor, wasn't he? Did, was that a factor, that sense that you wanted to find justice and promote justice? Completely. But, it, you know, it would be disingenuous, to say the very least, to say that, you know, his life story is what fundamentally influenced me. It's what happened when it started that I realised that that was the connective tissue that was the thread that had woven itself into the tapestry of what I was doing as I you know I, I remember being a pupil now it's unthinkable I got pupillage without ever having gone and watched a court case not thinkable now I mean mm. just not thinkable you know we have 400 applicants we take two or three and most of them leaving aside the first and the PhDs have done more work experience you know than me frankly um and um I remember not really kind of being aware of what was going on, but then fast forward gradually as I started doing real cases on my feet, case after case, day after day, and being an advocate as I not mostly was, as I exclusively was for a better part of a decade for people without power, just having that growing connection between my grandfather's narrative and the sense of significance of being somebody that was standing, standing between a powerless individual and the state and how important that was. And then to reflect on his narrative that there was nobody there who could or did do that for him or any of our community. 
and and the, the the thought of that that power grew and has continued to to grow over time. And do you worry about the rise of anti-Semitism again now? Yeah. Do I worry about it? Yeah, I do. But I'm also like he was and is really hopeful. And I also think we need to be honest and realistic about it. Have you experienced in, it in yourself? Many cases, never. Mm. And quite the opposite. And in fact, that's what's such good news. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of Pollyanna-ish figure. I, I have this unquenchable capacity to be hopeful, which as a Jew is a really bad thing. You know, it's usually the pessimists that are the survivors, right? Because they leave first. I have a real, through my grandfather, real belief in British values. What I mean by that is this sort of sense of the mainstream, the kind of centre off social media, the great big heart of Britain that sort of is sceptical of any kind of bigotry, really, kind of angry anti-Semitism. And if you don't believe me, try and be a Jewish student on campus, mm. for and, instance. And there was another form of prejudice that you suffered yourself when you were growing up, which was homophobia. You once said that there was nothing that suggested that to be gay was safe and normal when you were at school. Mm. Did being gay make you feel unsafe? Was it incredibly difficult? No, it made me feel kind of, um, I wanted to hide and shame. I mean, it's so shameful. But it's really hard because there are other kind of dynamics at play, right? I mean, I was Jewish and so there was that. Again, we talk about this really important thing, the uh, uh, the narrative or the story or the expectations that society places upon you, your parents, communities, you know, and it exists in various both positive and insidious ways. It's true of the way in which society places those values and meanings and expectations on women in general, for instance. You know, and for me, it was I would get married and have children, right? That was the expectation. That was the normal. You throw into the mix the fact that um, I was gay at a time of the or becoming uh, or, or coming into awareness, the time of AIDS, HIV at its sort of height, mm. uh, at its most terrifying. And also where there were no positive representations at all of gay relationships, none, zilch. You know, in mainstream culture, you kind of had Barry and Colin on EastEnders. And these were matters of national scandal, if you recall, or, or Stephen and Bart on Dynasty. You know, there they kissed. I mean, the next day, people wrote columns, which now would be considered to be hate pieces. But, you know, that meant that whereas you could grow up and if you were heterosexual, see your sexuality reflected back at you in all of its kind of range and colour and complexity, but nevertheless reflected back to you. So you were, in inverted commas, normal. Um, I, I was coming into my sexual identity at, at a time where teachers weren't even allowed to speak about it. And if you think about that dark thread of shame and how it sews itself into you, that shamefulness, the terrorism, the emotional terrorism of shame, um, that then became really difficult. I never experienced, I think, um, homophobia. Again, because of this privilege, such a great word, the privilege of my mum, who, yeah, had her mad half hour when I came out when I was 21, and I did explore relationships with women because I wanted to be straight and wanted my life to be easy and I wanted to love them. Mm. didn't want it to be difficult. And then um, she was completely kind of accepted. And again, use this word, she grew. My brother... I tell this story because it's 100% true. Stopped, reflected, paused for a second and said, I don't care what you are, just as long as you're not Arsenal. <laughs> and she absolutely meant it. It is absolutely true. But, but that's the thing. So the, the homophobia that I experienced was an internalised one. Mm. It was a sense of, you know, this awareness. First of all, you go... It's harder in a way. Yeah. It's not harder in a way. It's harder... In, in, it is harder. It's harder no in everywhere. Mm. In everywhere. I mean, I don't yeah. mean to correct you, sort of judge like it is. It is hard. <laughs> it's hard now for young young people from um, communities and families outside of arenas of tolerance that we've come complacent about or come to expect. But for millions of uh, LGBTQ young people, that's still their lived experience. It's got really better. Uh, because there are more books, more films. There is John and um, what's his dance partner? I've been watching him. I only watched it on YouTube. So oh, on Strictly, it on Strictly, yeah. Yo, 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 Hannah, John and Johannes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's mm. 
Do you wish you had gone on Strictly and been with another man? Or do you think that actually at the time you weren't ready for it? No, but that's not... No, maybe... No, it was 2016. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I certainly think we've come a long way in that half decade since I did it. But mainly because we come back to my childhood and the My Little Pony thing, right? So there I was with my Russian dancer who, I mean, great because I could do... First of all, I was going to practice Russian with her. That's one of the great passions of life is learning Russian... But it's, it, but, and I know, I understand this as a form of objectification. It's one that I'm sort of vaguely comfortable with, is I loved all the dresses. I loved her every week sort of getting in an outfit. And every week after we get to a new round, if we, we got through, I would buy her a pair of shoes to say thanks. And I loved all the shopping. I loved that. I didn't particularly like men's clothes, not for me, but all of the kind of female accoutrements, that sort of the grand buffet of things there are to delight in as a woman I really like so I was glad to be with women for that reason you know for I suppose all of the shallowest reasons imaginable. So what do you like about being on TV as Judge Rinder? Is it passing judgment or actually is it showing off and entertaining? Are those the two choices? Passing judgment, showing off or entertaining people? Three choices. Okay so I'm going to reject the last two. Okay. I'm going to take up the first one. Again, you know, I think you can feel in my answer a certain sort of terse sensitivity about how you've put the question. <laughs> because it's the type of question... It's a judgmental which, question. Yes. Is it a leading it question? Is. Mm. Yeah. Here's the thing. You know, um, yes, there is a degree of pantomime. I'm sure we deal with cases about broken mobile phones and goats that come and poo in the courtroom and so on and so forth. But at its heart, at its core, is real seriousness. And just, just bear with me for two seconds, right? So in the law, well, three, well, actually three things. The first one is the reason I didn't get killed by my colleagues is that I'd been a really serious lawyer, right? Mm. And because at the heart and at the core of what we do is a real judgment. So let's take even those dumb cases. Let's put it in another way. Let's take those trivial cases, right? I don't know whether either of you are lawyers, but um, right. Let's just imagine for a second, um, I told you about a case where there's a woman who um, was in a railway cafe and she ordered a bottle of ginger beer and she poured the ginger beer out into a glass and she found a masticated snail. And um, in fact, she poured it for her friend and her friend seeing the masticated snail had an attack of the vapours, passed out and wanted to sue the manufacturer of the ginger beer bottle. I mean, I can feel you shrugging your shoulders and rolling your eyes, right? Going, really? That's serious. (laughs) That's what you do with it. It's just showing off as I make jokes about snails and insects and so on and so forth. Well, what about if I were to tell you that that was a, actually happened in the uh, mid-1930s and it meandered its way up to the then House of Lords, our now Supreme Court, and the judge in that case started his judgment with these words, who is my neighbour? In other words, who do I have responsibility to if I am a manufacturer? That case, which is called Donahue and Stevenson, which you can look up, case about that masticated snail in that ginger beer bottle, is the entire basis of all law and all common law jurisdictions of my obligations as a manufacturer to you and my capacity to sue you when I don't have a contract. It's the central law of tort. Mm. And it's the law in Pakistan and India and Australia and New Zealand and Canada. Somewhere, somebody somewhere, some lawyer will be writing Donahue and Stevenson on a piece of paper as we speak. Mm. So even the dim cases, there's a sense of complexity and seriousness. But also, um, yes, of course, it's fun to do the cases. I love doing it. But, you know, there's never a moment where I leave court going, oh, that was great. And I give a speech always to the audience in the cases saying it's critical that we, this is about human dignity. But if you watch the the programme regularly, what you'll see is what we mostly do is create a space for two people sometimes more to hear one another and if there's a resolution at the end that's a win mm, and yeah. often toxic family disputes have emerged on the face of it because of the subject matter of what they're arguing about some money that hasn't been paid but actually at their core it's about a whole range raft of other things and sometimes not all the time they'll leave having heard one another and that's really those are the shows i should tell you those are the programs that get the best ratings too. 
So do I enjoy showing? Sure, it's fun and stuff. But don't forget, again, you know, you'll see a case. Sometimes I might have done it for an hour. You'll only see 15 minutes of it. Um, and I give full judgment as mm. well. So mm. my sensitivity about your three options, whether I was just a show off, <laughs> whether I, well, I can't remember what they were, <laughs> struck me as a type of sort of snobby thing you might get at a dinner yeah. party. Mm. Well, I don't know. It's a type of throwaway thing that, mm. you know, my sensitivity about mm. not being serious. Yeah. And so even in your introduction, I was like thinking to myself, well, what about, you know, my, I write two columns and I'm, you know, making a series in the New York, I think, I can't announce it now, but about Israel-Palestine and, you know, or, or the whole, and I think, you know, there's a sense in which I, I don't like, it's not just a me-shaped thing, the snobbery around the programme, as if somehow what I'm doing is pure entertainment matters, but there's a good deal of learning in it too. Mm. So do you think that being Jewish or being clever or being gay has had more of an impact on your life? <laughs> what is it with these choices? It's like a sort of, you know, A, B, is there, I want an E. Is there What's your option? E? Yes, give us some other options. What's had the or most D, impact D. then? Well, you or know, F. again, this is a really, it's an interesting conversation, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we use the word intersectionality and I can feel people bristle when you use that word. I love it. As long as it's positively discussed and not... Um, a ways in which the complex ways, because it's complex, the various ways in which our identities interact with one another and the various ways society has formed our identity, um, you know, they, 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 they sort of interact with each other like musical instruments in a symphony, I think. I, I, I can't say what's had the most effect. It depends. They've all had a a variety of different influences on how I perceive and see the world. So being Jewish and gay undoubtedly, I think has given me an instinctive sense of always standing alongside uh, the victim in an argument intuitively. Uh, it's given me a, a sense of values or it's given me a, a raft of values and a scepticism towards power and the powerful. Being gay and Jewish has certainly um, made me think about what powerlessness really is, how it looks and feels and tastes, and, 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 and how we can preserve, protect and defend the powerless best and be advocates for them. Both being Jewish and gay are, are those kind of critical centrepieces of my identity. The third one is really a trained identity, being a judge, if that was the choice. Um, so I, I, I think I couldn't say which is more important, you know, whether I'm a Jewish gay or a gay Jew, who knows? Mm. So, so looking think. back to yourself at the age of six, when your parents divorced, mm. what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Is it about what really matters in in life and the form of cleverness? Or is it something Maybe. more emotional? Maybe. I, I, can't, I can't say. I, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I wondered if I'd, you know, like the beginning of Macbeth, where I'd met my three witches, and trust me, I've met them. Places, um, whether or not you know, uh, I I'd have been surprised at the way life has turned out. Um, I certainly would have been pleased. I think I'm about to go and present GMB for a few days, and you know, I don't. What do I wish I would have known? I don't know. You know, I I don't sort of. I have to be honest. I you know, there's. I've often been kind of glib when asked these questions, but this feels like a non-glib type mm. of discussion. You know, I sort of trotted out the usual kind of maxims that you say, which kind of please people. You know, it's just true. I met somebody once, a great grandy 80-year-old woman who said to me, you'd look like the type of person that worries a great deal by what people think of you than what you think of others. And that's been a helpful thought. I wish I suppose I'd known that. But I don't know. I don't. I don't look at my six-year-old self and think, gosh, I, you know, I wish I knew more. I, I think um, perhaps it's not necessarily in my professional life, I think it's fair to say. I think um, where being the child of a broken family in the sense that, no, I know this is a bit, I put it this way. I think that um, I don't necessarily have a great skill set when it comes to holding down a relationship and achieving the kind of professional balance vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the balance that you need to maintain uh, a quality intimate relationship is something that is really a, a, a problem 
it's not true with my wonderful, great gift of my life, the, the every everything of my life, which is my friends. And um, the fact that I've managed to genuinely, um, having been in the public eye now, so really know this, um, I'm never troubled by what strangers write about me on social media. Never been touched. If a friend, somebody who I'd uh, allowed in part to my kind of intimate world, if I'd upset them, that really troubled me. So my friends are great. But I, I don't think, I think if insofar as, you know, my childhood did any lasting, um, had any kind of lasting uh, toxicity or damage, it's it's been in my inability to... I think be a good husband. Rob Rinder, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a delight. Now, how much do I have to pay you for that? that <laughs> You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, Rob Rinder. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in this series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.